From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. There's an effort to use the Constitution to keep Donald Trump off the ballot in Colorado. And the arguments are about to get their day in court. CPR's Benta Berkland gets us up to speed. Then a homeless union forms in Colorado Springs. And with the famed bookstore The Tattered Cover shrinking its stores, you might think it's tough times for indies in general. Not so. We were expecting stores to struggle through the pandemic. And while some did, a remarkable number of them didn't and actually thrived. And we're seeing people choose to open bookstores at a rate that we have not seen in many years. What explains the plot twist? And the story of artists in the San Luis Valley who were taken advantage of and are finally getting their due, or some of it. I'm Leanne Klassen, and my husband Bob and I are CPR Leadership Partners. We are very happy to be able to support CPR. The wider reach, the wider coverage of the world, of Washington, of Colorado, and individual communities across various platforms all continues to add to the value of CPR, and it truly is a treasure for our state. Connect your passion for CPR with a gift at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The Constitution says people who've committed insurrection can't hold elected office. So does that apply to former president and 2024 candidate Donald Trump? That question will be litigated in a Denver courtroom next week. CPR's Benta Berkland is following the case. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. At the heart of this is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It says no one who's ever sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution can hold office in this country if they have, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. How might Section 3 apply in this case? The people bringing this lawsuit forward argue that former President Trump's actions after the 2020 election disqualify him from being on Colorado's Republican presidential primary ballot. And in particular, the lawsuit alleges that he incited and exacerbated a violent insurrection because the mob of people who stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th believed they were following his orders. And the advocates for the lawsuit note that Trump refused to condemn or call off the mob for hours. Okay, so important to understand it's the primary ballot we're talking about for the GOP. Who brought the lawsuit? It was filed by six Colorado voters, four Republicans and two unaffiliated voters. And they have standing because they're people who can participate in the GOP primary next year and have a stake in who gets on the ballot. Here's how one of their attorneys, Mario Nicholas, describes them. They believe in the rule of law and they believe in the importance of our Constitution. And that is at the heart of this. Nicholas has represented Republican campaigns and causes for years, but he became unaffiliated when the party turned toward Trump. So, Benta, is this primarily coming from never-Trump Republicans, like people on the right who want him out of politics? Actually, no, it's not. It's a strategy that groups and scholars who oppose Trump from both sides have been discussing for a while. And for this lawsuit, the money and coordination comes from a liberal group, 
Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. And they're really spearheading the effort. Will Mr. Trump be part of next week's hearing? Not that I know of. Nothing in the documents so far suggests that he'll be directly participating. Instead, each side will make their best arguments for why the 14th Amendment does or doesn't apply to his actions. Trump's attorneys have argued that he was exercising his First Amendment rights, and the former president weighed in on social media to say the lawsuit is a trick being used by the radical left to, quote, again, steal an election. If Trump is taken off the ballot here in Colorado, is it any sort of game changer for his current presidential bid? Well, you know, it's interesting. I don't think winning the primary here in Colorado is especially crucial for his efforts to win the GOP nomination. Even if Trump is the eventual Republican presidential nominee as a blue state that's already voted against Trump twice, I think it's safe to say Colorado would not back him. However, supporters of this lawsuit think that if it does succeed here, it could have a domino effect and lead other states across the country to remove Trump from their primary ballots. There are already pending lawsuits in Minnesota and Michigan, similar cases. And if Trump was barred in enough states, he may not be able to secure his party's nomination for president. Okay, so this legal argument is being made in other states. Has it ever succeeded? Has anyone ever been barred from office under the 14th Amendment? Well, this whole idea of using this approach against Trump gained traction after this same liberal group successfully sued last year to remove a county commissioner in New Mexico from office after he participated in January 6th. That commissioner had been convicted in federal court of a misdemeanor for entering Capitol grounds without going inside the building. His removal from office and his disqualification from holding office in the future was the first time the 14th Amendment had been used to remove someone since 1869. Now, of course, it's a pretty big leap from a county commissioner in New Mexico to the U.S. president, but it does show that there's at least some legal precedent. Also around January 6th. Uh, Okay, you mentioned 1869. Of course, the 14th Amendment was adopted after the Civil War. And easy to imagine there were concerns about letting former Confederates back into government. Although it's interesting to hear that it has been barely used since. Uh, Benta, I can imagine this whole effort gets a lot of pushback from Trump supporters. Absolutely. Yes, I've, I've talked about it with several voters in the past few weeks. Republican Joanne Baker is from Castle Rock, and she told me she's really upset about this lawsuit and the idea that Trump wouldn't be allowed on the ballot. And that's just unbelievably ridiculous. They can't do that. I mean, I don't know what's happened to my state. (laughs) One thing I've heard from a number of voters like Baker is that they just don't see January 6th as such a serious event, certainly not an insurrection. And like the argument, lawsuit is arguing. And then I talked with John McCord. He's a conservative voter who lives in Akron on the Eastern Plains. He said nothing is going to stop him from voting for Trump again. I'll write his name in, even if he's not on the ballot. And I think a lot of people here will, because what they're doing is wrong. Even on the other side of the political spectrum, views are split about whether it's a good idea to even try to keep Trump off the ballot. Democratic state lawmaker Chris Degree Kennedy is from Lakewood and says, look, it's clear Trump tried to subvert the election, but he's not entirely comfortable with the lawsuit. 
that is a disqualifying offense. But also, you know, in the grand scheme of how divided our country is, I don't know whether that's the right way to go forward. I think that there's a subset of the electorate that's going to feel really aggrieved. The best way to win in a political environment is by persuading the voters that you're right. So there's a week-long hearing in this case that begins Monday in state court in Denver. Will it be resolved, Benta, at the end of the hearing, or is this just the start? This is very much just the start. We don't expect a decision from the judge before Thanksgiving. And of course, her ruling will almost certainly be appealed. Mario Nicholas, the attorney, said this case is so big that there will probably be multiple appeals, including to the Colorado Supreme Court and potentially the U.S. Supreme Court. But all of this has to happen on a pretty tight timeline because Colorado's primary ballot must be certified by early January. Okay, Benta, thanks so much. Thanks, Ryan. CPR Public Affairs reporter Benta Berkland. You'll be able to find our coverage of next week's hearing to try to keep Trump off Colorado's ballots at CPR.org. We'll be right back as Colorado Springs hones its approach to homelessness. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When it comes to elections, an off year doesn't mean Colorado voters get to take the year off. Ballots for the fall election are out, and CPR.org is your place for answers to your questions about voting, election security, and this year's two statewide questions. That's all at CPR.org. If you live in Denver, denverite.com has you covered for local elections. And there's a voter guide for Southern Colorado at krcc.org. Happy voting! It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A picture of homelessness now in Colorado Springs, a sprawling community where camps and sweeps are frequent and where folks on the streets have begun organizing, pushing for new solutions. From the Springs, CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce is with us. Hi, Dan. Hello, Ryan. Let's start with encampments. There's a proposed agreement on sweeps or cleanups between the city of Colorado Springs and El Paso County. What's the thinking behind this? Colorado Springs has these vast, sprawling city limits, right? And they they kind of just amoeba about in all directions. And there are actually then some county lands that are completely surrounded by city lands. And I spoke with Mitch Hammes. He's the city's neighborhood services manager. He says the city has these teams who clean up homeless camps, but they have to stop at city limits. Ah, and county teams would need to stop then at county lines. Yeah, and Hammes says that's just an inefficient process. People experiencing homelessness would drift from one side of the street to the other, where one day they're in the county, one day they're in the city, and it was very hard to keep those areas clean efficiently and effectively. The reality is that our community members driving by or walking by, they don't know where the city limits stop and the county limits start. How would this proposal lead to a more efficient approach? To sum it up, the city has more staff and resources for camp cleanups than the county does. This proposal basically says the city folks can go out into the county and conduct those cleanups in the same fashion they would, and El Paso County will then reimburse the city. The city council is set to vote on it during their first meeting in November. There are, of course, critics of these cleanups and how the city of Colorado Springs conducts them. I guess, first off, how do they work? The police department has what's called a homeless outreach team, the HOT 
team, when they come across the camp or they receive a complaint, they go out and post a notice that it will be cleaned up, Hamas says, at least 24 hours in advance. Then if the camps are still there, if people are still in the camps, we start doing a safety walkthrough of the camp and we just start asking people politely, hey, it's time to go. You were notified yesterday you can't be here. If there's any confrontation or anger or anything that goes on, neighborhood services withdraws. We call the police department. They come out and take care of that. By and large, because we've been doing this so long in in this manner, People are often still in the camps, but they're rolling up their tents, they're rolling up their stuff, they're getting their stuff, and they're moving on. I'll note that Colorado Springs describes this city-county cleanup agreement as part of a broader approach to homelessness. And cleaning up these camps, they acknowledge that, yes, this is about aesthetics. This is about keeping Colorado Springs clean and orderly. They underscore it's about public health as well. These camps can become unsanitary, the city says, and cleanups help. All right, that latest effort from the city's side. More news this week out of Colorado Springs, and that's about a new group representing the unhoused. On the same day, the council publicly discussed this agreement with the county, a new coalition of housing advocates, and in particular, a group of unhoused folks themselves announced to council they've formed the Colorado Springs Homeless Union. Union? Homeless Union? How does that work? So there are actual formalized homeless unions in different cities around the country, chapters of the National Union of the Homeless. This Colorado Springs group is not that, at least not at this point. It's quite new. And right now they describe themselves as a more informal group where unhoused folks will advocate on their own behalf in front of the city. Here's how Shane Hood describes it. He's unhoused in Colorado Springs and is one of the early leaders. This way here, we're in their face because we're not hiding anymore. They, they can't make us hide anymore because th- that's what they want is they want us to be hidden so they can say, oh, yeah, the homeless people and they can talk about us, but they don't have any representation in, in the public eye. Now we're going to have that representation in the public eye and show them that we are powerless no more. And the group says they are actively considering whether to pursue becoming a chapter of that National Union of the Homeless. Well, I'm very curious what sorts of goals this Colorado Springs Homeless Union would pursue. So far, it sounds like pretty concrete and practical things. They mention initial priorities like having a larger city parks budget for open public restrooms and more trash cans in public spaces. And Shane Hood talks about advocating for free bus passes. Using like either their Springs Rescue Mission card or their Marion House card and they get a free ride on the bus. That way, somebody working and they you know, happen to lose their job and go homeless because of that, they can actually possibly get back to work and not have to buy a car to do it or pay the Uber prices and get back to work and get back in the housing. And Dan, you mentioned the notion of more trash cans. That is to say, those experiencing homelessness are also concerned about cleanliness in an ordered city. Did you ask Shane Hood about the city's new cleanup agreement? I did, and he's not a fan. Uh, Many local unhoused and their advocates complain these cleanups are too rooted in what they think of as a punitive police enforcement strategy that they feel is undignified. And Hood, he also 
says sort of the same thing that Mitch Hammis from the city says, although, of course, from a different perspective. He, he says, too, that these cleanups just keep moving people around. That makes people think that everything's great and that, oh, they're off to the side, so it don't matter. They're, they're fine that wherever, as long as they're not in the public view. So that's all they do is they just shuffle the homeless people around. That's it. I mean, they don't really go anywhere. And you mentioned it, Ryan. I did find one area of broad agreement between Hood and Hamas. Hood also does say flat out that he also wants the city to be clean and orderly. He doesn't want there to be a whole bunch of homeless camps either. He, he does know a few folks who do want to live outside and people he feels should be policed. But the majority of the folks he knows in the unhoused community, including himself, he says they want housing. They don't want to live on the street. We need to give them a place like rehab, a motel or something, and give them a place to stay and give them some dignity. Dan, thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce. Colorado is one of 33 states suing Meta, the parent company of Instagram and Facebook. The suit claims the platforms can be addictive and harm young people's mental health. My co-host, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield, discussed the case with Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser. Colorado, along with Tennessee, led a nationwide investigation of Meta. The premise of this investigation is that Meta was deceiving parents and kids about their platforms. They were telling us, don't worry, they're safe. They knew differently. And evidence shows clearly that they saw how these addictive features took young kids down black holes, harming their mental health, Mm. kept kids on this infinite scroll. We need to protect our kids who are hurting. And we're seeing the signs of it in suicide rates, in emergency room visits. This Social media challenge is part of why we're seeing worsening teen mental health. We're committed to fighting it. Can you elaborate about the types of addictive features that the lawsuit says Meta uses? There are a few features that deserve to be called out. One is the so-called infinite scroll feature, which means you keep scrolling, you keep scrolling, you keep scrolling. They make it very hard for you to stop because their goal is to keep you engaged, even when they know it's harming you. They also have these notification features they've designed to be extremely effective and also coming at you very regularly, interrupting people, tempting them onto the platform in ways, again, that's not healthy. We believe they are using these features deliberately. They design these features knowing the impact and the harm is harm that they're responsible for. And the suit claims that Meta routinely collects data on children under 13 without their parents' consent, which is a violation of federal law. Our challenge is not only state consumer protection law about their deceptive and wrongful behavior. Our challenge is also under federal law, which is why we're in federal court. There's a law that says you can't collect information from kids under 13 unless their parents know about it and consent. Mm. That didn't happen here. They targeted 11, 12-year-olds because they saw them as a valuable, untapped customer base putting profit over kids' health. What is it that the lawsuit is requesting? What's the end goal? Our end goal is several fold. First, it's critical that Meta as a company be honest 
with parents, with kids. Stop deceiving people about their platforms. Second, they need to change how these platforms operate when used by kids. When a young person is on this platform and they're being brought down a dark hole, worsening their mental health, when they're being kept on the platform at the expense of getting a reasonable night's sleep, these have lasting mental health and physical harms. We want to change that. How important is it for Colorado to join other states in this type of lawsuit? Colorado alone would have a hard time bringing a lawsuit of this ambition. This is a team effort. And what we've done, and there are a number of other states, nine, who filed actions in state court, which also benefit from the collaboration and the shared resources. When we as state attorneys general work together, whether it's on teen mental health, whether it's on opioids, whether it's on taking on Juul or big tobacco, we're stronger. And what we see here is a bipartisan action with collaborative problem solving at its best. Is this also a part of a broader effort by states and the federal government to better regulate the social media or virtual world? The same coalition that has brought this case and led by Colorado and Tennessee is also investigating TikTok. We're currently in disputes with TikTok about getting into this discovery we need so we can analyze their behavior. We recognize the problem is broader than only meta. TikTok is also obviously engaging in similar conduct. Our commitment is thoroughgoing. We want to make sure that kids are protected. We're going to stay focused on that, and we're going to keep working hard day and night to that end. What's the timeline for the lawsuit? What's next? Unfortunately, this type of litigation can take some time. We are going to be vigilant. We're going to be working as quickly as we can. But unfortunately, there's a lot that we don't control. So we're not in a position to give anyone a concrete timeline as to when we can get to a resolution. We're actually in court right now against Google, a similar multi-state coalition on an antitrust case that we filed three years ago. And so we know these cases can take some time. We're in this to get the relief that we believe our people in Colorado and in other states deserve. Anything else you'd like to add as we wrap up? I want to underscore that youth mental health is a problem that we are seeing, obviously related to social media, but in other contexts as well. We went after Juul, who pushed vaping on young people, again, using social media. And we're now going to be distributing the $32 million we got from suing Juul to help address this crisis. I'm going to be all in on this work. I'm inspired in Colorado by how many people leaders in our communities are working to help support young people. We're all in to protect our youth. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser speaking with Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. In a statement, Meta says it shares in the commitment to providing teens with safe, positive experiences online and has already introduced over 30 tools to support teens and their families, end quote. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour. We find out if the tattered covers woes tell us something about how other indie booksellers are faring. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. The life of a rodeo cowboy is not easy. Driving, flying, hitchhiking, doing whatever you can do to get to a rodeo. But for J.C. Trujillo, it all paid off. He became a world champion bareback rider. Decades later, at age 75, he's about to be inducted into the National Rodeo Hall of Fame. With all my heroes, you know, unbelievable. 
Meet the famed Colorado cowboy at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. People have tossed around words like beloved and landmark recently, referring to Denver's tattered cover bookstore. In the last few years, it grew to a chain of seven locations, but there have been ownership changes and financial struggles, and its current owners have filed for bankruptcy reorganization. Here is CEO Brad Dempsey. We have to take this action to correct a number of issues that have been aggregating over the last couple of years from not only the COVID pandemic, like all businesses, but also kind of the recent expansion of the company over the last couple of years. The company was at about 30,000 square feet in 2020. Through COVID and and after, the company grew to 45,000 square feet with the additional stores. We really can't afford to provide all that inventory at the levels that are necessary for our tattered cover expectations and those of our customers. And so the tattered will close three stores and lay off 27 people. Dempsey added the bankruptcy will give the company some breathing room to buy inventory for the holidays. We wondered what the landscape is for other independent bookstores in our region, and so we've invited Heather Duncan into the studio, executive director of the Mountains and Plains Independent Booksellers Association. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, Heather, people have been predicting the death of independent bookstores or even bricks-and-mortar bookstores at all for years Is that what you're seeing? That is actually not what we're seeing. Surprisingly enough, since the pandemic, the pace of bookstores opening has actually increased. We were expecting stores to struggle through the pandemic. And Mm. while some did, of course, a remarkable number of them didn't and actually thrived and came out more successful, had some of their most successful years. And we're seeing people choose to open bookstores at a rate that we have not seen in many years. Okay, well, let's tease that out. Why might bookstores have done okay in the pandemic and immediately after? I guess before we talk about new ones opening. Absolutely. I think there's several factors. One is the push that we have been making in the industry for people to support independent and local bookstores and businesses in general has been steady and growing for many, many years. But all it took was a pandemic for that to really sink into consumers, that if they don't support these independent businesses, they will go away. So customer buying practices just increased. They came out and started really supporting independent bookstores and businesses in their communities. And presumably, with a kind of redistribution of our free time in the pandemic, more people dedicated themselves to books, do you Absolutely. Think? Okay. They absolutely did. Um, buying habits changed quite a bit. A lot more uh, shopping from other websites other than the main website that people do a lot of shopping from. Uh, that rhymes with Babazon. That's correct. Uh-huh. Um, during the pandemic, of course, Amazon focused on shipping goods and services that were in, in very desperate need, foods, medicine, things like that. They deprioritized shipping books and other things. And because of the rise of bookshop.org, independent bookstores were able to get a lot of that business back. I, I confess I don't know what bookshop.org is. So bookshop.org is a B corporation that was formed just before the pandemic, very coincidentally. Huh. We were expecting 
bookshop.org to take many years to get to the level of business that it does. It gives money back to independent bookstores, and it provides a platform to sell books for independent bookstores, and it sells books and competes with Amazon. I see. So this was a way for independent booksellers to have a viable online marketplace. Absolutely. And it Uh was very coincidentally, as I said, happened to open just before the pandemic hit. And it allowed many stores to have an online presence that they would not have otherwise had. Would you call it a lifeline? I absolutely would call it a lifeline. All right. So that's a picture of why local bookstores did not fall on their face in the pandemic. Then to this idea that more are opening than you expect. What's that about? It's about, I think it's a couple of things. It's a little bit of a perfect storm of people making decisions during the pandemic that they wanted to uh, have a different life of work. And many people said, I've always wanted to open an independent bookstore. There was a kind of influx of available retail space. But there was also a decision by a lot of people to try different models of book selling. So there are pop-up stores and mobile bookstores and online-only bookstores. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Like a like a bookmobile that Absolutely. libraries have, but in the bookstore model? Absolutely. Oh. Many different kinds of people are trying non-traditional store models. Sometimes that is leading them to actually then open a bricks-and-mortar store on a main street somewhere or in a community, but sometimes that's not. And they are thriving in different ways, different kinds of stores opened by different kind of people and serving different markets than have ever been um, in the industry before. Are there any numbers that you can put to any of these trends for us? I can for my region. The Mountains and Plains region covers 14 states. Including us. Including Colorado, Colorado, Texas, all the way up to North Dakota, over to Nevada, uh, the western half of the middle of the United States. Our membership is up 30 percent since the pandemic, since 2020. Stores owned by the BIPOC and AAIP LGBTQIA plus community is up about 22% overall, a large increase. And that has a lot to do with stores that are prioritizing themselves around their identities and their communities and opening these different kinds of models. So it's a diverse group that is opening bookstores now. More diverse more than diverse ever. Group. Yes. Not to be a wet blanket, but you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that 20% of new businesses fail in the first two years, 45% in the first five years. And only one in four businesses makes it 15 years. Are you braced then for a lot of new bookstores to close? Yes, realistically, we need to be. We feel that we offer not just my association, but the other regional associations in the United States, as well as the American Booksellers Association, are really primed to offer our new stores the kind of support that not every independent business gets. Uh. So we're hoping that we can make those statistics look a little better for our new stores. But of course, we can't buck all of those trends. Some stores won't make it, but I think the percentages will be high enough that we'll see the trend of total numbers of bookstores still increasing. Do you know, are banks lending people money who want to open bookstores? You know, I don't have any statistics on that myself, but I would assume that they are. But there are other... Um, ways that people are getting capital and sometimes starting stores without any capital because they're trying these other models of starting. 
bookstores are opening that are really online only, which requires very little capital, mm. if any, to start, and they can build up their own capital before moving into a bricks-and-mortar space. Well, it's interesting that the notion of a mobile bookstore reminds me of the chefs who start with a food truck before they open, you know, a high overhead restaurant. That's a perfect analogy. Uh I have a really amazing store in Texas that opened as a bookmobile in a food truck court. And then that entire business model moved into an old high school that had (laughs) been closed. And all of the businesses in that, in their mobile units are now operating out of those classrooms. And it's a fascinating new way of looking at using old spaces and opening new businesses. One of the locations of the tattered cover that will close is in downtown Colorado Springs. I happened to walk by it some months ago and noted that it had a bar so that you could grab a book and a drink. Are you seeing more of that, where bookstores are selling more than books? Absolutely. That's definitely one of the models that is growing. Bookstores themselves tend to have a very small profit margin and many other things, including food and beverage and sideline and gift items, have much better margins. The markups are big. That's absolutely right. So there's a lot of that combining and bars and restaurants and cafes are a big piece of that. At the same time, though, if people are turning as well to audiobooks, it seems to me that that would be, again, the demise of that tactile book purchase or e-readers for that matter. That's right. All of the other ways that people access book content, even though it has been predicted to hurt the print book model, they've all ended up supporting the print book model and just bringing more readers to that content. Oh, that's interesting. And or listeners. (laughs) And or listeners. So in a way, it's like a tide that kind of raises all boats. Absolutely. I think that's a great way of saying it. Now, I want to note that you worked at the Tattered Cover for decades, and you've asked that we not get into questions specifically about what's happening there. Can we say that the economics then of that chain are in contrast to what you're seeing elsewhere in the region? Yes, I think that's a fair thing to say. And part of the reason behind that, if you think of the 220-ish bookstores in my region, 72% of them have one to five employees. So the Tattered Cover and some of the other bigger stores in my region are very anomalous Mm. to my membership. They don't have the same sort of business models. And the larger stores did experience the pandemic in a much different way because of their overhead and, you know, their staffing and sometimes mostly are in big cities. And so the membership is full of smaller independent businesses, Uh generally speaking. Okay, that's helpful to understand. So if independent bookstores on a small scale are not dying, as has long been predicted, what do you think they'll look like in another 10 years? I actually think they're going to look very much the same as they do now, as they have for the last 200 years. People want to go into bookstores. They want to explore books with their hands, with their eyes. They want to be in a community space that has events 
and opportunities to connect with other readers. And so while I think that there are going to continue to be new models created by some of our younger, more diverse store owners, the basic concept of a bookstore full of books and places to sit and read and places to meet other people is going to continue. Hmm. It does make me think of the transformation of libraries as well, that these are gathering places, they're places to connect perhaps with resources and other people. I mean, I actually wonder if to some extent you see your fates as tied. I think that they are. And I think that, I mean, the fate of our civil society is tied to our libraries and bookstores in a lot of ways. And I think they will continue because people care so much about books. And reading continues to be one of the greatest joys that most people find. Hmm. Heather, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Heather Duncan leads the Mountains and Plains Independent Booksellers Association. I was in the Colorado Springs area earlier this week and stepped in it. A friend mentioned coffin races this weekend, and I blurted out, oh, you mean frozen dead guy days. But no, coffin racing began in Manitou Springs, based on the story of Emma Crawford, a young woman buried at the top of Red Mountain whose remains slid back down. There is some historical grounding for this, says Manitou's Jenna Gaius, who spoke with KRCC's Jess Hazel. The Pikes Peak Library District has an audio recording from a man named Bill Crosby, who was 11 or 12 years old at the time that he participated in carrying Emma's casket to the top of Red Mountain. He recounts having known Emma Crawford. Are there common inconsistencies in that story that often get told? When people think coffin races, her coffin sliding down the side of the mountain, uh, in reality, it wasn't so much that. Surely erosion over a period of decades had cast some of her remains down the side of the mountain. But it wasn't as dramatic as I think this event, the coffin races, makes it out to be. How did the coffin races get started? Well, the coffin races started in the mid-90s around a kitchen table um, from some of the folks that were on the Chamber of Commerce Board of Directors at the time, and the legacy of Emma Crawford came up. You know, hey, let's race coffins. And in the first year, you know, it was just maybe seven or eight teams rolling up the street, coffins on wheels. Obviously, you know, we're, we're in 29 years now. It's grown immensely What does it mean to keep these races authentic to Manitou Springs in that spirit of strangeness? (laughs) Well, it's certainly something that Manitou Springs has become known for. We have people all over the country doing something similar. You know, the keep Manitou weird vibe is certainly there. We toss fruitcakes and race coffins. um, And that's kind of what people have come to expect. Just the unusual and out of the ordinary. We're all our own kind of weird, right? But Manitou's a real no-judgment zone. You can be exactly who you are in Manitou and be accepted here. You mentioned other coffin races. I know there's one during Frozen Dead Guy days and in Nevada and California that I know of. So those are inspired by this race, right? Yes, they certainly are. And when it comes to Frozen Dead Guy days, is there some friendly competition between these races and and those? 
Well, you're going to be the first to hear this. Yes, we have had some real fun with the previously uh, Netherlands Frozen Dead Guy Day coffin races. And um, initially there was what we called a coffin cup. Our team would go up there and, you know, take the wheels off the coffin and grab a few extra people to run through their snowy obstacle course with their corpse. And then their team would come down here and put wheels on their coffin. So we resurrected the coffin cup back in 2017 because it had, um, after those initial years back in the late 90s, had kind of died off. But um, with the Nederland coffin races through Frozen Dead Guy Days moving to Estes Park, while we did send a team up there in March, they are not sending a team down here for our races. And at this time, the Coffin Cup will be laid to rest. Events like these races, celebrations tied to a moment in history, how do they impact the way that we preserve and share history? It's a constant reminder year after year not forgetting history, um, remembering where you came from and um, the stories, the cultural heritage that we have here in Manitou is so strong and bringing that forward and reminding people year after year is pretty special. That is Jenna Gaia, Special Events Coordinator for Manitou Springs. She spoke with KRCC's Jess Hazel about Saturday's Emma Crawford Coffin Races and Festival. When we come back, a much less morbid tradition in the San Luis Valley, a special kind of embroidery. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. They didn't want the mural there, and they asked me to paint over it. And I refused to do it, so I lost my job. Check out Off the Walls, a new podcast about Denver's street art. Take this white paint, and I want you to use it to indicate for us your experience with white supremacy in America. Off the Walls on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. With support from Credit Union of Colorado. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Artisans in the San Luis Valley embroider in a traditional style known as colcha. They create elaborate depictions of life in southern Colorado. KRCC's Shauna Lewis reports they've stitched farm scenes, churches, even a map of their community. Longtime San Luis resident Donna Madrid Hernandez sits at a shaded picnic table in the town park. She threads about a foot of blue wool fiber onto an embroidery needle. This is a very simple stitch. You get a long piece. You start at one end, you stretch it out. Then you take your needle and you go under that piece that you stretched out. She's working with a large rectangle of cloth and has already embroidered a white building with red trim onto it. Now she's filling in the sky. You're just going to go overlapping that long piece that you started and it'll take you back to the end and you start it all over again. Hernandez used a photo of the building she's illustrating to create the design. It's the historic Concilio Superior in Antonito across the valley from San Luis. The building houses a Hispanic mutual aid society that her father and grandfather belonged to. They backed their people. You know, they were there for them in hardships. When they didn't have money, they'd help them out. When they had losses in their family, they were there to support them financially as well as emotionally what they were going through. Hernandez is nearly finished covering every inch of the fabric with embroidery. The detailed work can take hundreds of hours or more. Artist Adrian Garbini learned the craft when she moved to the valley nine years ago. These pieces represent 
family members. They represent stories. They represent memories. They represent the place. And they are just these beautiful celebrations of the valley and of people's experiences. Garbini helped curate an exhibit of San Luis Valley culture embroidery currently on display at the Arvada Center near Denver. She says the pictorial style is part of what makes the embroidery from the valley special. A lot of the times people are depicting their very core memories in these pieces, things that happened to them as a child, things that they experienced that may not be part of their everyday life anymore. Like Patsy Garcia, a lifelong resident of Sawatch in the northern part of the valley. She says her most recent culture depicts her father's work as a sheep shearer during the 1940s. She describes a man kneeling by a sheep with his clippers. Then I have a sack where they used to get the balls of wool and press them in the, in the bag and, and then tie the bag. And it's a big, huge bag of wool, and it's just beautiful. But there's a part of the history of culture in the San Luis Valley that isn't so beautiful. In the 1970s, a now-defunct Denver-based foundation brought a program to the Valley aimed at helping rural women through cottage industry. The organization set up culture embroidery workshops there and then arranged exhibits in bigger cities, including at the Arvada Center. Garcia says a number of her pieces were among those included in the various art shows, but the cultures went to the big city and vanished. We made pictures that we never saw again. They were taken from us and we never saw them. So the money that we were supposed to make wasn't happening. Some of Judy V. Hill's cultures disappeared too. She grew up in the San Luis Valley and lives in Pueblo now. It was always on my mind, whatever happened to my beautiful pictures or my work, uh, that I put a lot of um, energy into it and a lot of pride, because I do take pride on my work. When Garbini heard about the missing art, she connected with the Arvada Center, one of the original art show venues. The staff there discovered nine pieces in storage that the city had purchased all those years ago. Those are now hanging in the current art show and will be returned to the artists and their families. After decades, V. Hill will get some of her work back. It was a big shock to me, yes, and I'm happy that they found them because I I didn't even know where they were at. I, they were gone for the longest time. And I know there's still a lot more out there. Garbini and others are trying to research where the other missing cultures went. Meanwhile, the San Luis Valley artisans are happy to have their work on display and teach a new generation about the craft. Shauna Lewis, KRCC News. Let's just spend a few more minutes with Shauna. Hi, Shauna. Hi, Ryan. You mentioned that Garbini and others are trying to find out what happened to the other missing cultures. How many are missing? They don't actually know how many of the pieces went missing back in the 70s and 80s. Garbini says the culture workshop program lasted about five years, and that's when the pieces were sent out of the valley. The thing is, she says, the women were not invited to the shows or included in the planning. Some received a few dollars compensation for the sale of their work, but they never got an accounting of where their work was, and some of the women have passed away since then. Hmm. The artists and their families just don't know what happened to the cultures uh, if they'd been sold or gone into collections, so they considered them lost or stolen, and so far, Garbini hasn't found a complete list of the exhibits and what works were included. 
Gosh, yeah, painful to have something so personal just go missing like that. So how did the women respond to this pretty negative experience? Yeah, some of the women who were part of the original program actually gave up doing culture as a result of that experience. And Garbini says others became wary of outside organizations coming into their communities, and some stopped for a while or they took up other types of needlework. But both Patsy Garcia and Judy Vigil still embroider and do lots of other textile crafts, too. How did they know to search the Arvada Center collection? There was a catalog from the 1982 exhibit there, which which also included other art from the San Luis Valley. That and a conversation with Garbini got um, Emily Grace King, who's a curator at the Arvada Center, looking through some old records. She found some documentation showing that the city had purchased nine culture embroideries for its collection. Keep in mind that the center was operated by the city in those days, but it didn't work directly with the artists, and it went through that now defunct organization. So the nine pieces sat in storage for decades just since then. And as we said in the story, those are in the show that's currently at the center and will be returned to the artists and their families. Hmm. Have they found any others? A few collectors have come forward to discuss the possibility of returning pieces. Ah. Garbini is hoping that with the media attention from the current exhibit, that more people might get in touch. But because so many years have passed since the pieces went missing, Garbini says she imagines that whoever has them now may not even know where they came from. So often it is the case that when we are acting in good intention and we are disconnected from the communities that these experiences are happening from, that we don't have access to the realities of those stories. They're actually putting together a catalog for the current Arvada Center exhibit that they expect to have ready around the time the show ends in November. Garbini says there's also a new exhibit in the works slated to open next year at the Center for Colorado Women's History. It'll be focused on the work of Josephine Lobato, and she's someone who's been stitching cultures for decades and, as an activist, often includes those kinds of themes in her work. Garbini says it's really important to get the work of the San Luis Valley culture artisans recognized more widely. You mentioned that some of the artists are teaching culture, too. They are, and interest is starting to increase. The Arvada Center sold out a series of workshops associated with the exhibit, and Garbini says that some folks have reached out to her from other communities, and, as you might expect, the artists are teaching their families, too. Donna Madrid Hernandez has already taught culture to children in Fort Garland and Alamosa through school and library programs. Those kids were awesome. One young man finished his project, and he was so proud of it. The other kids worked on theirs, and they were excited about it, too. She says there is also a culture group that meets regularly in the San Luis Valley, and they will show people how to get started, too. Thus, continuing the tradition generationally. Thanks so much, Shauna. My pleasure, Ryan. KRCC's Shauna Lewis, Culture Embroidery of the San Luis Valley, is on display at the Arvada Center through November 12th. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to the folks who make up our tapestry. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers. Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, 
Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.